What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another episode of Live from Nerdville. I don't have my hat on today. I'm going, I'm, I've, I've kind of I've spruced up because I have a very special guest, your friend and mine, Mr. Bernie Marsden, the legendary Bernie Marsden. Thank you for coming on here, my friend. I, it's, yes, so I've been looking forward to it for a long time because I haven't seen you in such a long time. So there you go. Yeah, I haven't seen you since we recorded the um, that we wrapped up the Abbey Road uh, record. That was back in January, which seems January, like a yeah. lifetime ago. A lifetime. Yeah. In a different world. Yeah, different world. What have you been doing? <laughs> what, have you, what have you been doing in uh, in in lockdown? You've uh, been writing. I've, I've, I've been writing. I've I've got I've got some new stuff for you to check out cool. and uh, put your magical touches on. Uh, Playing a bit, but not enough because my hand. I went in the studio and my hands hurt for two days because right. you have to have a reason to play, don't don't you? That's the thing, you know. I, I, I there's a the the prevailing narrative among the COVID nineteen era for musicians is like people are going. Can you imagine the kind of creativity and the playing that's going to come out of this? Every all these musicians just locked up in the room. I'm going. I live in a house of guitars. Okay, <laughs> I'm not playing anything. I'm rusting. I pick up the guitar. I go, man. I, I've been set back two or three years. You know, yeah. I, is it the same for you? Where you're just like, you have to have a reason. You go, I got gigs. I got to rehearse. I'm, I'm going to make a record. You know, we're yeah. we're at that school, right? That's right. And and you you play at home, and you pick up a different guitar, and they may have heavy strings on whatever. And you think you've playing. I got in the studio with regular, you know, 46s on, 48s. Man, I couldn't play. The engineer was laughing his ass off, you know, and saying, well, you still play pretty good. And I say, no, 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 it's not working. My hands hurt. But, you know, it just shows you how much how we take it for granted. You know, I've been I've been working with Eric Gales um, recently yeah. on some songs. And he was just here in Nashville. And he tunes down a half a step and he uses 10s. And... I was playing his guitar and I was like, I was like, man, this could, I could get addicted <laughs> to this because I'm normally 11s tuned up to, you know, yeah, uh, I know. pitch. So Bernie, tell me about like one of the, the, the things I try to ask everyone and, and, and everybody has, a, a, you know, we all have the love for guitar. We all have a love for music. Um, and what I try to ask everyone at the beginning is when did you know, what was the spark? that got you into music and got you into guitar playing? Because, you know, it doesn't matter if we're from the UK or America, it doesn't matter if you fill stadiums or you play you play theaters or whatever. It all starts in your bedroom as a kid. Yeah. And the, 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 the host and the conduit to music comes from somewhere. What was that, what was that for you? I think, uh, in, a, in a nutshell, I was kind of aware of uh, the shadows over here. Right. That was a big thing, you know, two guitar, two guitars, bass guitar and drums. But I was a bit younger. And then a crumb, them come the guys from Liverpool. Right. And the Beatles made everybody think, I want to do that. Right. And because of what happened following the first releases, when they said, well, we write our own songs, we do what we kind of want to. We turn down this songwriter's song. Suddenly it became OK to say, I want to play the guitar, even right. though it seemed an impossible dream. Right. But I think that was what it was. And then to be able then to listen to the radio, pick up your your first or second guitar and make out some kind of sound a little bit like the Hollies and the, the solo that somebody played and then have your mom and dad say, you know what, you're quite good. You know, you were not very good, but they could recognize 
that you could play along with a theme tune to a TV show or something. And that was what started me off. What was what was on the what was on British radio at the time? Because I, I know in the late fifties there, there was a big skiffle craze. Yeah, and and you know Lonnie Donegan and and that whole thing. Even even Jimmy Page was playing skiffle in the late. 50s. Yeah, yeah. Was that was that like mom and dad approved music? And then when the Beatles came out, they're like, I, I, I think that kids, you know. I think that's a. a I mean, even the Lon, Lonnie would would have been the punk of the era. Right. And we, we had a lot of American stuff. There was like Perry Como was big and stuff. I remember growing, thinking like, and then then the first record that really hit me was uh, uh, Buddy Holly. Right. And then, because I, I didn't know anything about Fender Stratocaster, but I knew I liked the sound. And then I sent my, I think I talked my dad into going out to buy the record. And he, he came back with another record that because he just asked for a Buddy Holly record. Right. So I think he went out for a Brown Eyed Handsome Man or something, but came back with That'll Be The Day. But I didn't mind because I had a Buddy Holly record. Right. And were they, were those records printed on British labels? So the, yeah. the labels were licensing this rock and roll? Yeah, because- I mean, obviously, the, the, the I, I was lucky. I had uh, an older cousin uh, two cousins who one was into Elvis because I, and that was you know I was way too young for that, but then another one he was into uh, Howling Wolf and Sonny, Sonny Boy Williamson, and uh, in in my in my book which I, I I just said well he came to my house when I first played the guitar, and I tried to impress him by saying look I can play this lick by the Searchers, and he looked at me with disdain and said well if you can play that learn this and he gave me a Howling Wolf record. Right. So that was the that's the main turning point. That was when I went, oh, okay. And when I started to try and play, and I'm still trying to this day to play some of that stuff, uh, that was the turnaround because I only listened to it. And strangely, on the radio, you ask about British radio, every not very often, but very occasionally, Big Bill Brunsey would come on a kid's show, not himself, but the record. Right. And I remember hearing that and, and thinking, what what is this? Because I didn't know what it was. And only when I got to like 13 or 14 – Asking right. a few questions and so no that that's uh, people call it jazz actually that's how that's jazz you know that's American jazz you know right question um, did you grow up in a musical family you know was was mom and dad musically inclined did they like music did they they, they were music fans but not music not musicians and not there's not one musician really uh, inside my my extended family really it was it was purely a, an imagery thing with 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 television and radio. And me picking it up and deciding, oh no, I like the feel of this. I, I think I can do this. So uh, they, they all, but they were always encouraging, you know, and they, and they liked their stuff and they were pretty, they were fans of, well, they were big fans of Lonnie Donegan, funny enough, right. who I was lucky enough to get to know towards the end of his life. So wow. that was cool. That was cool. How did you, uh, how did you convince your parents to buy, to buy you a guitar? I think I hassled and hassled them, really. And then I did get a hold of a, a friend's, very very bad acoustic guitar i know we all have the same story but i did play along with a theme tune and right. said you know this they say well that sounds pretty good and i said well it would be much easier if i had a guitar with a better action you know we right. all know about that right, yeah, right. and uh they didn't we're obviously know what that meant but I said, well, you can't play above the fifth fret you know right. that didn't mean anything to them either of course but but i think i impressed them enough with that strange little tune for them to go out and find me in one for 10 pounds instead of one for a couple of pounds do you remember what it was what what the brand of the guitar was no i don't joe i i 
I've often tried to think what it, but it, it it would have been something from Czechoslovakia, right? Uh, in those days, you know, I've still got a couple of things knocking around, and if I see one in a in a junk store, I'm, well, I'm, I'm talking to you, so I don't have to say anything about it. I just can't help myself. I still have to take it away, and I know I won't play it. Yeah, but I mean, a few of those around. It's nostalgia, you know. Yeah. It's like yeah. Like every time I see one of those Chiquita guitars in a store, yeah. I know they they don't really play very well. They don't really stay in tune. You still but take it, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's as we all know, it's a it's a it's a disease that we will not recover from. I know. So tell me about your early um, memories. I know when you were you know your first band, um, I was doing some research. Was it's called Skinny Cat? Yes. And that was my that was my local band. That right. was the guys from around the area, you know, and we did pretty good. And um, it started off as a five or six piece and ended up as a three piece. And well, who's going to sing? And the drummer said, "You are." Right. You know, so I got I was thrown into it, and I'm still trying to get my head around it. I suppose all these years later, but it was a difficult thing because I I'm from a very small area, and in those days there weren't many musicians around. Right. So to find two or three guys you could play decent music with was 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 really good and skinny cat became a kind of big fish in a small pond right and but it was never going to be the band that i could turn pro with i we i did the thing i went to apple i took my demo tape and i you know i saw this and i saw i saw these guys and this guy and you know and it was all a dream and suddenly somebody turned it was mike vernon actually uh, at uh, blue horizon who inadvertently was saying to me look uh, you know you're you're a pretty good guitar player and you have a kind of an interesting voice, which was a nice uh, euphemism. But he was basically saying, you know, you need to be in another, in a better band. And right. I, because you don't want to leave your, your mates, you know, where, yeah. I'm, I'm 18 years old or something. Uh, so that was what happened. So Skinny Cat never really did anything outside of a local circuit. But we got to play the Marquee in London. That's where I first met Gary. Right. And we, we did all those shows. So, you know, we reached a kind of uh, a level that we always wanted to do. And then it stopped there when I turned pro. You know, I mean, for the backstory for the for the folks out there, Mike Vernon, um, mm. you know, you, if you look at John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, yeah. like Mike Vernon, legendary music business, English music business producer yeah. type. And, you know, one of the things that always intrigued me about you is like, you know, everyone. everyone. <laughs> yeah. When you mention Gary, you're referring to the late great Gary Moore. And yeah. You know everyone. You're probably the last direct conduit to that time and that 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 time and place in in the in London where it was all happening. You know, I mean, what was it like as an 18 year old playing the marquee with you know such bills that there would be like Alexis Corner and John mm. Mann, the Blues Breakers, and yeah. Mac with Peter Green. I mean, like it must have been just mind blowing to have this amount of music truncated into such a small com community and space, even though London's a huge city, but it's, it's, these yeah. are, these are life changing moments there. What was that? You're, like? you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Because of course, when you are 18, you don't really know what's going on. You're just taking it on board. Right. And, but, but I've, I, there's an entry in my diary for the first night I met Gary mm -hmm. And I just said, uh, tonight we played with Skid Row, some guys from Ireland who are really good. And right. at the bottom of it, there's an asterisk, and I put G. Moore, brilliant. Wow. And that's 1970. And right. it's just, and then the week after we were with Chicken Shack, I think, and Slade, 
and all these guys who I got to know later on. And, he, and but I wouldn't annoyingly, obviously, once I was turned pro, I'd say I played with you when I was seventeen or eighteen. So right. then you got to go. Oh, we'll talk to him. So we'll never get rid of him, you know. But I've been really fortunate, Joe. I mean, I've been around a long time and met a lot of people, but really good players, you know, Kosoff and you know to see these guys one to one in their say in their prime, but certainly at some stage of their prime. And you know, I, you know, I got to see Hendrix. You know, I mean, how many people? You know, I mean, there's a lot of people saw Hendrix, but I was first time. The same bill was Rory Gallagher, who I'd be, you know. So yeah, I'm, I, I get your point, but I don't really, I didn't really think about it so much. And but it is nice to know that there's such a, you know, your generation has come again through when we 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 known each other for ten ten plus years now, but. You listen to that stuff the way that I listen to it, and right. you soak it up. And yeah. I think it's just one of those remarkable, like as you say about Mike Vernon. You know what he did with that one record, and then a cut with the one with Peter afterwards. And we could, well, we could do a whole show about that, couldn't we? Absolutely. But, yeah. Tell me yeah. about first your first professional gig. You were you it was UFO. Of yeah. All, of all of all bands, you would not you know associate <laughs> Bernie Marsden with with UFO. Who is what was the lineup? Um, what was that version of, of UFO? Because there's been a lot of lineup changes. Already. A lot of lineups. And um, I, I was the guitarist who replaced a guy called Mick Bolton. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was Phil Mogg, Pete Way, Andy Parker, and myself. Right. Wasn't the best marriage ever made, but it was a pro gig. And they were managed by a company called Chrysalis. They had a record deal. They had a manager. They had everything that I didn't have with Skinny Cat. Right. And th they said, we're going to Japan in a couple of months. Oh, my God. And we're going to do this. And we're gonna... And I thought everything was like a Beatles EP cover, you know, right. being a pro. But it wasn't like that. And we just didn't really get along. But the experience I got from my, what I always refer to flippantly as my 20 minutes with UFO, but it was about eight months. Right. Uh, but I met a lot of people, and, and I was the guy who saw Michael Schenker playing. Right. I went into the dressing room and said, I've just seen the guy who should be in this band. Right. And that's why I'm in the band. You know, so it was a kind of a strange thing. And it would get a bit physical some nights, and um, it, it was not the uh, happiest of times. But I look back on it now, without UFO, I wouldn't be talking to you now, because that gave me that ladder step up the ladder to be right. and then i joined wild turkey after that which if it had been my first band that would have been the dream start right but i had the should we say not the horror start but i went from being big in north bucks in england right. to being a well-known guitar player in northern europe so right. the, the move was it was a no-brainer really it, i just wish we'd have got on better as, as young people we're you know we're all uh senior guys now we we don't talk that much but we get we get along but it was a strange band to be in you know it's one of those things i mean it's your formative years you know yeah. you know yeah. uh, i'm common one of the commonly asked questions that i get is like do you regret anything uh, regret anything and i say absolutely not because every left turn that you said ah, i may have should have gone right or every right turn i should have gone left has led you to this point right now yeah. there's, there's no regrets i mean so you're in wild turkey you meet cozy powell you know, but you're now starting to become the man, you know, call yeah. we need a guitar player. We need a we need a hot guitar player. Call yeah. Bernie, call Bernie. And, yeah. you know, how did that feel like going uh, when you were it, it, things about the scale and you're like, going, wow, I'm, I'm actually 
I'm I'm actually one of these guys now. Like when was that you moment? Know, it, it took it, it took me a long time to to think that way. You know, because you always think, oh, that cup that that guy can't be me, really. I mean, I think the imposter syndrome sometimes. Has, has crept into you when you think, well, can I keep getting away with this kind of thing? Right. And you think, well, I'm doing okay. And then we were in a dressing room with Cozy one night, and Cozy says, cleverly, said, oh, Palomine's coming down tonight. Uh, Palomine's come to see the gig. I said, oh, okay. So I'm sitting in the dressing room, and uh, 20 minutes before we got on stage, Jeff Beck walks in. Right. I mean, lose your mind, you know. And he just, Jeff being Jeff, is grinning and making a joke. Him and Cozy look like twin brothers. And he sits down and says to me, um, uh, oh, I like your guitar. And he looks at the Beast. And uh, he's playing it. And he says, oh, I'll play you something from my next record. He sits down with the Beast and a little Fender Champ, which I still have, and plays Scatterbrain. Right. And I've got to go on stage in 20 minutes and do a gig knowing he's in the audience. Right. But it was, you know. He did that on purpose. No. He did that on purpose. Yeah, he did. He did. And Cozy was just laughing his head over. I mean, they they probably set the whole thing up, you know. Right, right. But to this day, you know, Jeff and I are still still friends. So, which is which is nice, you know. Tell me about the Beast because this is arguably one of the most famous Les Pauls in the world, and you've had it since I think you believe me. You told me like 1973 or 1974 is when you. Before, yeah, yeah. And, Tell me about did you did you know that the infamous now or famous fifty nine Les Paul was something you you needed to get you know because at that point Jimmy Page was playing him Jeff yeah, Beck yeah. had played him you know yeah. I mean Chicken Shack the guy he had a burst you know like when when did you when did you go I need to get one of these fifty nine things you know for yeah, myself I think I knew what when I was in um, in UFO but because I I had my first Les Paul with UFO before that was the SG, which I, you, you've seen my SG uh, the, the, and, and Gary borrowed that one. Right, right. There's another, there's another drop in the ocean. Um, but we already knew that, you know, with, within the community of going into the guitar stores in, in Denmark street and, yeah. and talking to people and saying, saying, you should get one of these Les Pauls, you get an old Les Paul. And they say, yeah, but they're, they're very expensive. They're 300 pounds, <laughs> you know, and, and we're saying, yeah, but you can get one for like two twenty or two. So, oh no, but you can get a strap for a hundred quid, and you get you can get a three three five for for a hundred and fifteen quid. Right. And so that was the what it was a it was a monetary thing really. And I remember going into a Pan Music in London, and they were uh, they were either Spencer Davis's burst right. and Robin Trowers, which were both under three hundred pounds, hanging up on a wall. Right. And people were buying them. Suddenly, started saying, "Oh no, I'm keeping this." And then um, once you got a hold of one, you just had that guitar. Right. And did you get, you know, these days people say, well, and I, I'm fa I know I'm quite infamous for having another certain famous guitar, Les Paul, which I sold. Right. Right. Uh, but I made a big, big profit on that guitar. And at the time, I already had the beast anyway. Yeah. You didn't. Need I mean, I, I get stick all the time from the forums. You know, you know, you had the Keith Richards burst. Yes, I did. You know, but I sold it. You know, well, who knew? You right. Who knew? There was no such thing really as a vintage guitar until about 1977, 78. Right. It was a second-hand guitar. It was a good. You want a new one or you want an old one? What did you have to give for the Beast? You told me this, but I want the I want the fans to know. Well, how how much how much did you how much did you give for the Beast back in the day? I, I think I traded it for what came to 550 pounds. Right. So you paid up for the guitar. It was it was top end. And I told the guy on three occasions, 
I'd love the guitar is amazing. I love it, but I just don't have the money. So I traded him a, a Les Paul custom, which I'd right. turned into a Peter Frampton guitar, right. you know, with, with, with cream surrounds, which right. worth the value of the guitar these days. Right. And, and I had a, a, a large headstock Stratocaster. I traded yeah. him those two guitars and I owed him, I think a hundred quid. So you work out what they were worth in those days. Right. And the guy was really cool and didn't hit me for a hundred quid until I had the money. But he wanted me to have that guitar. And only a year later did he start to tell me the backstory of the guitar. He wanted me to have the Les Paul because he said, I think it will suit you. Well, that was definitely correct. And then a year later, he said, how are you getting on? I said, oh, it's fantastic. He got, and it was stood right beside me as he stood there. I said, it goes over. And he said, yeah, isn't it strange how that guitar could be let go by the following people? And that's when he told me about the Kosoff Eric connection. Right. Well, you know, it's it's and you've had the guitar now, um, well, be almost forty-seven years. Yeah, and yeah. that's is it that long? <laughs> well, I'm forty-three, and I was born in seventy-seven. Oh, don't tell me. Minus I think four, you reminded yeah. me of this before. Yeah. So yeah. tell me, like, so at that point, you're 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 a working musician. You know, you're 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 in demand, and you get a call to play with with Ian Pace, John Lord, and uh, Tony Ashton. Yeah. And and which is odd because Tony was a piano player and John was an organ. So you have in this band there was two really good keyboardists, you know. And there was this was a reaction to Deep Purple being in between lineups and yeah. time changes and stuff like that. What was that experience like being in that band? Because like you must have been looking around going, okay, <laughs> purple now. You know what I mean? This is big league I, stuff. I, I I mean I've said this to people, but you know, let it out to the world. I knew nothing really about Deep Purple. Right. I knew how good the guys were. I knew that Ian Pace was a great drummer and John Law was a monstrous talent too. I knew that Richie Blackmore was a great guitar player, but it, it wasn't my bag. Right. Cozy Powell put me up for the gig because he was in Rainbow right. with Richie and saw John in the office and he said, we're looking for a guitar player. And he said, I've got the guy for you. Right. He called me to say, go down and I didn't know anything. And that's when the famous quote came, John says, uh, at the audition, which I didn't even think of as an audition. I thought, I know nothing about this. Why am I playing with these deep purple guys? But what I knew from the audition situation was these guys were just fantastic musicians. Yeah. And I wanted to thought I wanted to play because I played with Cozy and then that had finished. I thought, I want to do this. Right. When I do this, I know nothing about Deep Purple. And that's when I said to John, I only know really dance on the water. And John just cracked up and said, I think you mean smoke on the water. <laughs> but I said, but I only know the riff that everybody plays in a guitar shop. And I said, and I probably play it wrong. And that's right. when they said, that's why we want you to be in this group. Yeah, they wanted because to start. Yeah. Yeah. And I, the, but the, the funny thing was when Whitesnake began a year and a half later, David Coverdale had only heard the PAL album. Right. And he thought I was like a session guy because it's all very rhythmic and clipped. And so and he said, well, I didn't think you were like a, a lead guitarist. And I said, well, you know, you didn't know what I did before that. He said, no, I didn't. So when I went, when Whitesnake began, I went down really because he was auditioning drummers and he wanted my opinion because I played with Ian and with Cozy. Right. And now before I got there, he said, bring your guitar with you. So I did. Wow. And, uh, that's how that began. So, you know, there's a there's a thing, you know, I, I because, you know, I believe everything I read online. It's the Internet is fully vetted. Everything on there is true. I found it interesting that um, 
during that time, just as White Snake was forming, and you're you know you're working with Coverdale and everything, that that um, you were asked to join Wings, or they were thinking about asking you to join Wings. What was what was the story behind that? The guy who played with Pace Ashton Lord, the leader of the Horn section, was a guy, great guy called Howie Casey, right. and he was Paul McCartney's guy in Wings. Right. Jimmy McCulloch was a another friend of mine. And he had finished with Wings. Right. And Paul didn't want to go through this. This all came to me via Howie, you know, the audition thing. And Howie said, I've got, I've got a guy because Pace Ashton Lord had ended by then. Yeah. And so he said, I think I've got the guy for you. He sings, he plays good, he has no problems, you know, he's no, there's no baggage that goes with him. So I got the phone call can I go? and I was really excited. Right. And so then I went to his office in London, to Paul's office met his manager and I know then I was called back again and they say well Paul is in Arizona or he was in Maui or somewhere he's coming back next well of course in those days there were no telephones yeah and a week went by another week went by and a month went by and I was by that time PAL had finished and I had no income right and I was kind of ringing the guy said is anything happening because I really need to know Right. And they said, well, Paul's not come back yet. And, but, you know, it's not like an audition thing. You just need to have a play together and, you know, and see how it goes. I said, yeah, that's great. Okay. Then cut in me going to London, to a gig in London, bumping into David Coverdale, who said, oh, I hear you're joining Macca. And I right. said, not really. I said, there's a possibility. He said, well, I'm putting a band together. And if you'd like to come down, but I can't match his offer. And I said, well, yes, you can, because there is no offer. <laughs> but he didn't know then how I played until that day we all got together to jam in that rehearsal studio uh, yeah. near John Henry's, which you know, which you know right. well. And uh, that was how that began. So then I had to ring the McCartney office to say, uh, thank you for considering me. Right. But now I'm putting, a, I'm going to be in a band with the guy from Deep Purple. And they weren't very happy. Right. So who was in the room the, fir the first time you guys fired up White Snake? you know, in, in the rehearsal? Was, was Mickey Moody, was he there? Yeah, yeah. Nick Murray, uh, was John Lord there? Yeah. No, no, it was uh, um, Neil Murray, Mickey, David, myself, and a succession of drummers and bass players auditioning. Right. And then uh, we finally got, I got, I got Neil in because mm -hmm. I said, look, the guy I played with, with Cozy Band lives around the corner. Right. So I called him up and said, come down. So he was kind of a natural shoe-in. And um, then we got, he knew David Dowell, who played with Roger Chapman and Streetwalkers. Right. And uh, he came down. He was really good. And that was the first lineup. Keyboard players we really struggled with. I think because both David and I had worked with the great man, right. it was hard to find somebody, you know. And we yeah. had a succession of people in and, you know, even though we had a six-piece lineup to, when we first went on the road with diff different people, it was only really ever a five-piece band. The keyboard player, until John came in, was never really part of the band. So right. uh, the two guys who played, were, you know, were very good. Pete Solly had played with Terry Reid, who you know well. Yeah. And um, uh, he, he was great. But Pete, Pete always wanted, we felt he wanted to be the producer of the band. Yeah. And that was never going to happen because we had Martin Birch already lined up. Right. And uh, that was never going to change. So, you know, when John came in and said, he came to see us live and said, I think he rang David up and he, he, he gave me a nudge and said, you need a keyboard player. And I said, well, I'll let you know, you know, right. kind of, it was kind of cool. And then he, then after that, when Ian came in, 
there was this thing like, oh, are you reforming Deep Purple secretly? So, well, no, it could be anything further from the truth. But, you know, that's how we all know how magazines like to talk. Right, exactly. So, yeah. like, when you were, like, this is always intrigues me when a band first gets together. You know, what, what was the moment of realization when you went, hmm, we got something here. There's a special sound that we're making that, that you know, even though everybody else was in high-end, you know, mm-hmm. different situations, you were like, this could really work. We could really make it go. Was, was it a particular song? Was it a sound? Was it just everybody on the same page going, hey, I, we want I, to be one, the hard rock thing? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think we found very quickly uh, once David, Dowell, and Neil, the rhythm section was locked in, Right. The keyboard, the keyboard thing was kind of okay. There's a keyboard player there, yeah. But Mickey and I locked in. Mickey and I had known each other a long time, but we'd never played together, yeah. And there was this thing, and that was with the, the thing that delighted David so much: the fact that it was like an Allman Brothers thing going on, right? And the fact that he'd been through all the uh, histrionics with Richie and with Tommy, yeah. Uh, and suddenly there's this pair of kind of down to earth regular guys who played pretty good guitar, but weren't bothered about being the next superstar guitar player we right. wanted to be in a good band and write good songs right and i think he re- that that was really part of the uh, appeal to him but then we started to to really kick some ass in the rehearsal room and then we wrote uh trouble together and i wrote a song called come on with him pretty much the first 10 days right and it was kind of look at each other like like you and i in the studio last year you know that thing is like hang on this is good this isn't going to be hard work right you know there's a, there's a, you know, you can do what you do. You just, you, we know David and I knew, and I think you and I knew that even though it took us a long time to do it, yeah, you know, there is a spark there that you can't rehearse. Yeah. There's a chemistry, you know, yeah, chemistry. and you know, I mean, let's just, we'll talk about some of the, some of those songs, uh, walking <laughs> in the shadows of the blues. Yeah. yeah. For you loving no more. And here I go again. And yeah. I remember watching television. This would have been last year, just before I came to London. We started working on the on the Abbey Road record together, and I was watching a Geico commercial. <laughs> and they kept using, you know, here I go again, and I go, go Bernie Marsden, <laughs> you know. And tell me, like, how life changing? Because I don't have any perspective on that. You know, how life changing are those moments when you know? You know, fool for your love and no more. Huge hit. You know, here I go again. I mean, that's a that's a song that will be played as long as people play rock and roll. You know, I mean, yeah. Did you know it when you wrote it, or did did it? Just I think. Pretty good? I, I think we. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I th- we knew we had something, even though the 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 the, the reissue the reissue. That's that's sorry, that's a rude word. Uh, the new version that the the band got cut in nineteen eighty seven. Right. It was very different to my version in 82, I think it was. But the song inherently is the song. I mean, yeah. which, the, the treatment that I gave to it was different to the ones because it, it was a different era. Right. And I thought they made a great rock record. And Here I Go Again was the icing on the cake. I had no idea, uh, inclination of what it was going to become. Right. I knew, I knew we had a good song. I was really pleased. I wasn't really surprised that they re-recorded it. Because right. I think uh, I think it was John Kolodner at Geffen Records in those days who really liked the song and wanted to do another version of it. Right. And if, I could, if we could have said, and 30 years later, 
you know, here, here and we were on the Geico commercial or whatever, and and everything else. And this, and Steve Lukather will say the same thing, saying, you know, every time he hears it on the radio, he, he, he you know, he's looking laughing because it's me. It's like one yeah. of those things. You know, but it's, you know, it's well-deserved. And, you know, I mean, you've always been so supportive of other guitarists and artists and because mm -hmm. it comes from such a pure place. You love yeah. it. You love it. Mm -hmm. And, and you're, you're like, listen, you know, I wrote some big songs. I can play the guitar. I've owned some nice guitars. But, you know, I remember, I remember meeting you at the Royal Albert Hall in 2009, and I was like, holy crap, it's Bernie Marsden, you know? Yeah. And you were just there because you 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 had heard about me through yeah. you know it, it, I was kind of getting uh, more well known in the UK at the time and and you came down to say hello, mm -hmm. and you've always been so supportive and you've done that for so many different artists because you just truly love, you know, music and yeah. to me it's like I always equate you as like the the BB King of rock blues guitar. Ah. You just you just want you just Thank want you. it to keep going and going on the next generation. But then it but then when you play yourself everybody goes holy crap it's still bernie mars and it's like <laughs> it's your own well, when, we, when we did the show together uh, when you come and grace you know grace the stage with me in london in uh, january that yes. was it makes such a change for me because it's usually you calling me out right and and but just to see those people's faces you know and then we did the you know we did the peter green tune and right. it was so cool and but it was such a great vibe in the room and i think what would I have been like if I'd have been stood out in that crowd in 1970 when Eric Clapton played with B.B. King? Right. You know, or whatever. Not that I'm putting us or whatever on that pedestal because nobody can reach those levels. Right. But the feeling is the same to me. Yeah. I want to ask you about um, – I have a list of artists that I want to ask you about. And just give me your thoughts on, on, on these people. We talked a little bit about Gary Moore. and We talked about your diary entry. Fantastic. Mm. Gary, uh, to me – just on a personal level, was the most devastatingly fiery blues rock guitar player of all time. Just never, just unrelenting. What, what, what are your thoughts on Gary Moore? Uh, I was going to say, you just beat me to uh, relentless. Yeah. But he had no, he knew how good he was. Right. But he also had no idea how good he was. Right. Does that make sense? You, yeah. yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, when I first met him, we were both, you know, I always, I always tell the story on stage, you know, how we're kind of the same age, but when he became really famous, he became three years younger than me. And, uh, and he looked at me and grinned and said, that's what happens when you're a star, bro. you know. Okay, and right. that just made me laugh, and I was so happy for him because Skid Row was such a crazy band. I'd seen nothing like it. This, the, the arrangements, the way that they played together, you know, the, these really intricate riffs and stuff, I'd never seen anything like it in my life. And then right. you sit down on the drum kit, with his Les Paul and do rambling on my mind. Yeah. Completely, you know, so, and he, but the, what overpowered me with him was he was so nice, such a nice yeah. guy who was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And Rory Gallagher had been like that, who I met at the Woburn music festival, queued up. So I met, I queued up to shake his hand. Yeah. You know, I was just one of the hundreds who wanted to, because nobody knew what the taste was. Gary was like that. And R Rory remembered, he wouldn't remember where he met you, but he would remember he'd met you. Right. And that impressed me as well. And I think some of that went through. So Gary was so good to begin with that you could never see where he was going. So when he went into Thin Lizzy, 
it was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But why isn't he doing his own thing? Right. And he did do it at the Gary Moore band, which wasn't awfully successful at first. Yeah. You know, the original band. But um, he was such a great player. But he wouldn't play acoustic guitar in public, stuff like that. He'd say to me, don't ever do that. Don't ever do that, you know. And I'd be at a gig with him, and he would never leave the dressing room. Little things like that that I remember and, you know, love, love him for at the time. And, and then he played at my wedding. So uh, how bad was that? <laughs> right. Um, but you, you just you just um, you just covered another guy, Rory Gallagher. Hmm. Um, you know, tell me um, tell me about your relationship with Peter Green because you, of all people, seem to have probably the best relationship with him because he's such a recluse. But you you really yeah. have befriended him and 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 and, yeah. and, and I, help him out. I, I try. I've tried to keep a. A contact with him uh a because he'll always be my my number one really right. you know that you know without eric there would have been none of us you know without jimmy but peter was the thing he was the guy that touched me and you know and and not just me and i tried to i, I kept in touch with him through the 70s a little bit then the, he disappeared and when he came back into the the splinter group when cozy was playing with him i got a chance to get back close to him again and I've tried to keep in touch with him. And I did that album, um, uh, Green and Blues. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of, I thought it disappeared again. And uh, there's his manager at the time. She phoned and said, I said, well, and I'd love Peter to hear this, but where is he? And she said, he's sitting next to me and wants to talk to you. Wow. And I said, what do you, so I said, I sent then a cassette of Green and Blues because I, I, I wanted his seal of approval, I suppose, yeah. really. And, uh, Gary had heard that that was the other funny thing that some people don't know about when he did blues for Greeny, that was because his guys played horns on my record. Right. And when they went and said, Oh, we did a great session the weekend. I said, Gary said, what have you been doing? And he said, Oh, we just done this thing with Bernie. He's doing all the Peter Green stuff. He said, I want to do that. So they right. went out, so I put mine back. Cause right. I didn't look like I was going to be jumping on the Gary Moore bandwagon. Right. But Peter was such a, you know, by that time with splinter group, I wanted, I, sort of got close to him again and talked to him and I could see, you know, that, you know, that he wasn't the guy that I'd first met when I was a kid. Right. But just the, over the last two or three years or two years, really, you know, I get down and I want to go and see him. And I was with him on the day of the Peter Green tribute concert in January. Right. He wasn't at the concert. He was at his house and, and I was with him. Right. He's, uh, we played together. Mm -hmm. He plays really good, you know, right. Is he, he doesn't play like he did on Mr. Wonderful. Right. But that's because he doesn't really want to, you know. Right. But we played uh, some Eddie Cochran stuff. We played some Jerry Lee Lewis stuff. And he was singing and playing. We had a great time. He's a big uh, influence on so many people. But you have to remember, these, these, you know, he's a, he's a guy. You know, he's a, he, he lives on his own. And um, at the moment with the... With the virus, it's difficult to, to, to visit right. him. But uh, I will, you know, try to phone him. Somebody, you phone him, is potluck if you phone him. He picks up the phone or he doesn't, you know. Yeah. Or then if I then phone him and say, you didn't phone me. I said, well, I tried and right. stuff like that. But he, he's good. But he's he's uh, he's the man. Why do you think being he was so influential that he's not mentioned in the pantheon of the Holy Trinity? Beck, Page, Clapton, Green. I know. When you, when you, when you add on, you go, yeah. Back page Clapton yeah. Green and everybody goes oh yeah right right Peter Green my yeah. God you know it's like because he had great songs I mean wrote yeah. God I mean to me blues standards 
And, harmonica player. Yeah, I mean, great harmonica player. Band know. leader, singer. Yeah. You know, I mean, what do you what do you think? Is it just because he decided to he decided to retreat yeah. from public life so early? I, th I think the whole thing when Fleetwood Mac was so big at that time, and when he stepped back from it, and um, for all the you know, we everybody knows the stories, or actually, right. do they really know the stories? Yeah, you know. But I know quite a lot, and I know that he wanted to step away from it because that's he was. I was in a band called Babe Ruth for a while. I'm going back a little bit, but the drummer in Babe Ruth went to school with Pete. Right. So when he came to a Babe Ruth gig. Again, a bit like the Jeff Beck situation. Oh, right. Palomar's coming tonight. It was him. Right. And so that was the first time I got to play with him, uh, a sound check. And he, he promised faithfully to come back for the gig at night and mm -hmm. never showed, of course. Right. So that was how – but he remembered that when we reconnected uh, in the Splinter group. But he's a guy who just doesn't – you know, he, he wants to play all the time if he wants to play. Right. So right. I think with the Clapton, Beck and Page thing – He's he's he doesn't get included because people just simply forget that he was there. Right. I, 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 that's my my opinion. I just you know. But then you say, well, he did this song, Man of the World, and Green Man Elysian. Oh well, and they go, oh yeah, that's the guy. Oh yeah, that's the guy. Yeah, that's yeah. a guy. He, he wrote those songs. You know, right. oh, and that's him playing the guitar. Oh yes, you know, one of those things. But I saw, I was lucky enough again to see. I saw Danny Kerwin's second show. And that was, I, I wanted, I think I say in my book, the, the time, I wanted to hate Danny because we were about the same age and he was in Fleetwood Mac. You know, this was unforgivable, you know. It did a lot of heavy lifting in Fleetwood Mac. He did a lot of soloing, a lot of, a lot of slide he, work and, and, and no, doesn't he, credit for it because he. He, he was, was great, man. Yeah, yeah, he's great. He, Danny Kerman was so good, so good on stage uh, that, that you came out of the gig, you know, wanting to say, oh, and he was all right, you know, and you're going to come out and say, you know, that guy was brilliant. You know, he was. And Peter just laughed sometimes. You know, you see him grinning on the side of the stage, you know, and just lifted him to even to higher and higher and stuff. You know, I want to take you higher kind of thing. You know, it was, it was quite special. So I was fortunate enough to see that as well. Um, last thing I'll say about Peter is, like, very rarely do you get a, a, a compliment from B.B. King going, that's one of the best <laughs> slow blues guitar solos I've ever heard, and that's, I need your love so bad, and that was, you know, Peter. I mean, like, that's what some you, high praise. What did you say? But would B.B. say he was the only guy who ever gave me chills? Right, right. That's some, that's some, that's some that's high. That's heavy beauty stuff, isn't it? High praise. <laughs> Last but not least, and... I, I, I preface this to say that the last the, the last time I saw him, we worked together in Abbey Road Studios with this 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 gentleman, and I always tell people that Bernie Marsden has the patience of Job because <laughs> you're the only human being to get Ginger Baker to not be Ginger Baker. You'd actually you'd actually become human. The late I'm talking about the late great Ginger Baker. What are your thoughts on Ginger? Because to me, when I met him that day at Abbey Road, I had this notion of going, I really walked out of that studio going, I pray that the guy finds some peace because yeah. he's so yeah. freaking talented. And there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a human being under that very, very, very rough exterior that is supremely talented and gifted and has, has I wish yeah, he just yeah. knew that how much the music meant to all of us. What are your yeah, thoughts yeah. on Ginger in all the years that you knew him? 
Well, you know, I saw him when I was 15 or 16 with the cream. Mm -hmm. In your wildest dreams, I was playing the guitar then, you know, very, very poorly, and I'm watching the cream. Now, if you'd have said to me then, oh, and in uh, 25, 35 years, you'll be playing with Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker. Right. You'd have gone like, get out of here, right? I was fortunate enough to, to do both. Ginger, I always tried to look for the guy, and he made it, as you well know, very difficult. Yes, to find the guy, and now because sometimes I call him Peter, and he would look at me as if, and his guy would look at me and go, "Don't call him Peter," you know. I say, "Well, Ginger, wanting to call him Ginger or what? Call him Peter because I noticed that people around him sometimes would call him Peter, right? And he react differently, right? And then I would say, "I've got, I'm going to call up. Uh, there was the hit list, and you were, you were, you were on the list to, right. to get for the sessions." And I say, "I've got a friend of mine coming down tomorrow. Is a Joe, Joe Bonner." But he look at me and go, who? Who? <laughs> I said, well, he's pretty, he's doing pretty good. He's a young guy. He's younger than me. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then afterwards, he just look at me. And after you played, now you might not know this. Right. He looked at me and say, he's good, him. <laughs> you know? High and praise. High, high praise, Mr. B. You know, but he was such a an enigma. And I wrote some stuff in, in, in my book about him because I wanted to tell the truth. Right, and I said so went all through. I went through the rehearsal, driving to driving through like monsoon rain and stuff to get to him, uh, for him to not to come out and say uh, we do like, one verse of Crossroads and one line of something else, and, and he would say, "Well, you know it better than me," and it would disappear. And you think I've just driven three and a half hours to rehearse with you. We've done fourteen minutes, if right. that. Right, right. The sound check and stuff like that. He didn't want to do a sound check. I stuff and you just said, please, can we just check out the drums for us so you can? But I tried to say, but would I do it again? Probably not. Well, now I'll never have the chance. So thank right. goodness that I got the chance to do it. And I called you and said, look, he would. We would love you to come down and come. And you were there like that in a shop. You got to do it. You know, I mean, the thing about it. And by the way, as a as a natural born pitch man, I, I must compliment you on your your on your book placement, Bernie, because leads <laughs> to my final final thing I wanted to talk about today about your book, Where's My Guitar, which I can highly perfectly placed as a pitch man, <laughs> as marketing guy. Um, you're we're two we're cut from the same club. You know, it's like I, I, that, that that book is like chock full of these stories that, like you said about Ginger Baker, mm, you know, you'll never get a chance again. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think people have to understand just on a fan level and on a on just a musician level. Go, go see, the, you know, go see Buddy Guy. Go yeah, yeah. see, you know, all these acts because sometimes they've been around so long. People, I'll just catch him next time. I'll catch him next time. I saw it happen with BB King. I saw. I'll just catch him next time. Well, he's, you know, he was 89 when he passed away, and and was on the road for 60. But there's a there's a time now. We've five years. There's no BB King shows. You know, it's no. like it's like it's like. And your book is is a documentation of a time mm -hmm. and place that we won't we don't get back again. You know, and, and it's fantastic. I remember flying in from Norway, uh, whatever it was, 2005, I think. And I, I've been doing some shows in Norway and I flew to Birmingham. And that night, Gary Moore and B.B. King were doing a show together. They did a tour together over here. And if I'd have, you know, if I'd have known that within the next what few years, they're both going to be gone. 
Right. Yeah. It was like you can't think that way. And that night he played, and then he's Gary said, "We'll come down to Brighton, the gig that you and I, well, not, I played when you've been playing the gig." And we, I went there to see him that very stage, and I cried my eyes out on the side of the stage because I right. stood babies as he sang, "And when I leave this town, I won't be back no more." Yeah. And I was just choking up, and to think that they were—they're both gone now, and and. You know, Gary was, you know, even though he was not as young younger than me as he said, he was a little bit younger than me. So, and that's what, 11 years since we lost Gary now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and these guys are, you know, with with hindsight now, whether, whether it, it be my working, and I got to I got to play with Jeff Healy. Right. You know, and you know, this is something that you look back on and that you get invited to play. And, I, and I've been fortunate enough to get up play with you on on yeah. many occasions i hope we do it many more times but right it, you know if it was only one more time and you get a chance to do it if you, if you say oh no i can't be bothered you know forget it man you, you shouldn't be even bothering to drive try and play yeah and it's 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 a it's a testament to the notion of living life to the fullest and and yeah. you have and you know bernie thank you for being on here um i say this on a personal level like you know you, you've really become part of my family and and it's like you know and interviewing is a little strange because we know each other so well yeah. you know i mean we're, it's it's burning you know but <laughs> but putting together the notes for this you know even i you know i had to kind of pinch myself and going like you know it's it's not only my my pal bernie who's yeah Member of my family. It's Bernie freaking Marsden, and you know, and, 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 and I'm I'm just honored to know you, and I'm honored to call you my friend, and and you know, I think folks, you know, it's like you have such a great career, and and love this stuff so much. I wish I love it as much as you do, because it's, you've never lost, you never you never lost that spark, that, no, well, that enthusiasm. Part of that also, Joe, is is down to you know, you know, for ten years. We've known each other, yeah. and I've had somebody to look, look, look to go out and see play and see the way that you you've developed your way of playing, and the and the, the great musicians you surround yourself with. Who I get to, be, I mean, Reese Winans is playing some of my music. I mean, that you, that makes me feel so good. And we haven't even talked about oh the album, so we'll oh, do that another. Time. That'll be that'll be another episode. <laughs> <laughs> Bernie, thank you for being here, ladies and gentlemen. The legendary Bernie Mars, and pick up his book "Where My Guitar." It's a great read. It's a fantastic, you know, document of of a time that again we will never get back. Um, thanks for being here. This has been live from Nerdville. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen. One more time, Mr. Bernie Mars. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Joe.